Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment. There's no fees attached to it, and it's in the tech sector, so you can go to soleraclub.com. Ryan Irvine, Keystocks Financial, Keystone Financial, rather, keystocks.com, Keystone Financial, is on deck. He's got a couple of stocks for us, plus a really interesting report. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But time now for our quote of the week. And for the first time, I'm going audio. I'm getting some help with this one. I'm getting help with Dennis Miller, who was chatting with Jay Leno about the one aspect of the political scene in the U.S. Have a listen. And you don't think this cat right now is all the way left? Do you think everybody out there who is not doing well in life has been screwed by life? Or do you think some of them are idiots? You know, I want to help the helpless, but I don't give a rat's ass about the clueless anymore, Jay. You know, this country's, this country's in trouble. We've got to start isolating those two things. If somebody doesn't want to get it together and they want to get loaded all day, I'm sorry, I don't have anything left in the tank. I see enough authentic heartbreaks in the yeah, world yeah. that I'm not going to give it up for some loser who doesn't want to bust his ass. Well, I don't At th- some yeah. point, the life is this... Yeah. <laughs> I love that one, though. I want to help the helpless. I don't want to help the clueless. There you go. That's our quote of the week. Right now, welcome back to the show, Ryan Irvine, Keystone Financial. Ryan, appreciate you finding time on the weekend. And I think this is especially pertinent. I mean, you spend your time, I mean, looking at literally thousands of stocks, their annual reports, et cetera. But obviously, one of the big issues, uh, you know, we talk about, we think we're in the midst of yet another debt crisis. Credit is an incredibly important stuff. So I was wanting to know, who's got the cash? You know, which companies, I mean, that seems to me like a founding kind of principle of what companies you want to invest in. You don't want one with a cash problem. So you've done, a, a, I think, some brand new research here called Catch Cash Rich Small Cap Caps. And uh, that's why I'm glad to be have, have you with us. Excellent. Uh, thank you. It's great to be back again. Yeah, and we just went through that research. It takes about three months, go through about 3,000 annual reports. Our friends and family don't see us for, for that time. It'll be nice to get reacquainted with them over this weekend. But we just released that report, and we're looking for companies with cash in the bank, uh, relatively debt-free. And, and why do we do that? Because cash in the bank shows us a history of generating economic profit uh, in many cases. And number two, cash, cash-rich companies can quickly expand without diluting existing shareholders in boom times, but perhaps most importantly, they're positioned to survive in downtimes because they do come and even set themselves up to thrive by purchasing assets when they come on sale. And this is what leads to long-term success in a company. Well, you know, we saw that in the credit crisis where we saw actually some good quality companies, but they, you know, they were in the credit markets and they could not get access to credit and presto, they're out of business. Uh, And as I say, some bad companies went under, but some good companies did because they didn't have that cash backdrop. Now, is it easier or harder? I mean, is it what about this environment now going back a few years compared to this year? Are there more stocks in a better cash position? Would you just estimate or it's a still pretty rare find? That's an excellent question. Uh, we've been doing this report for around six years now. Uh, six years ago, there was definitely more, uh, definitely a higher percentage of cash. You're looking at companies with like 50% of their market cap up to 75% in cash. The companies now that we're targeting have about 20% in cash in that range. Um, and One of the observations is um, right now North American markets have had a, a five-year run that has been pretty decent. Last year in the Canadian markets, not so much, but 
So when we go through those 3,000 companies, one of the points or observations that we come up with is about 95% of them, for us, do not even make investment quality. Um, and it's really shocking when you look through. Uh, you, you, the example you were talking about Bombardier earlier, we've been looking at that stock for 20 years, and I can't understand why anybody, a company that continues to lose money, is heavily in debt, can, puts any investment dime in that company over time. It, it constantly shocks me. But when we look at that list of 3,000 companies, almost 75% of them do not consistently make profitability. Uh, 50% of them never make a dime of economic profit. So these are essentially money pits, and they're set up to enrich the financial industry, and they destroy shareholder capital. So when we look at these, we just we just immediately toss them out, and you have to avoid those type of companies at all costs. Let me just come back to one other thing, though. Let's say you find a company that's got some nice cash value. You know, I mean, it's uh, but it doesn't. That that's just one of the criteria you're looking at because it doesn't really mean, for example, that it's a good investment. I mean, so you know, let's say if I, I uh, the company, and I, I'm making easy numbers here. The company's got like a dollar per share, you know, in cash, and the stock actually trades lower than that. But that isn't the full green light there. Well, it's it's such a good point. It's only one little tool you can use in your toolbox. And, and in fact, when we did this study, we came up with 20 Canadian resource stocks that actually can be bought for less than cash value. So you can buy the shares for less than they are worth on paper. Um, but we call these situations value traps. And essentially, these companies, each of these stocks were TSX venture listed junior resource companies. And it really goes to the state of that industry. They're, they're trading it under cash value, and it's a reflection of how poorly management of these companies manage their shareholder wealth. Uh, it tells you that they are going to quickly burn through that cash on hand in a manner that will not increase shareholder value. And it's hard to argue when you look at the mm-hmm. TSX venture, which is typified by these companies over the past five years, the venture exchange itself has lost 75% of its value. So these will, are the companies that we call value traps, Again, avoid these companies at all costs. Yeah, th- uh, let me just, uh, sorry, I, could have, I should have asked this earlier, but I knew that you were looking at over 3,000 companies here. How many actually made the grade in the end for you that you sort of had enough check marks that you thought they were worthy of at least consideration? About, it's about 2%. There's 60 stocks that made our grade, um, and about only half of those uh, were the companies that were really interested in, uh, mm-hmm. 20% of them. Uh, or sorry, they would have 20% of their market cap in cash, these companies, and, and no debt. These are the companies that had operating businesses, they're generating cash flow, and, and thus be, are of interest to them. Now, the trick from here for us is determine whether they are growing and will continue to grow, and if they trade at reasonable prices. And that, for us, then makes them investment worthy. And again, I want to come back to that last point you're making. One of the mistakes that people make uh, who are, let's say, not as experienced is they get enamored with a story. You know, like this story sounds great. Well, look at this or look at this industry. But, you know, does it make sense? You know, are they, I, I love those things. Does it, it, you know, on a value basis, is it priced accordingly? Is it a good price? It's sort of, we can all agree that this car is a great car, but, uh, you know, it's overpriced. So you look for not just the operations of its business, not just, uh, you know, the stability in terms of cash or debt, but also, hey, what's that price? Because I, don't, I may not be interested if the price is, over, is too high. 
It, it's so important, and it's it's one of the major things that we look at is putting an actual economic value on the company, and and whether or not you're getting good value at that point, and whether or not that company can grow into that value over time. And you can fall in love with a story. I mean, the story of building planes sounds like a good story, but if the company yeah. never makes money at it, uh, it's not going to be a good investment over time. And and I just got to add to that. If the investment community doesn't like your company, I don't know why taxpayers should, other than political considerations. But <clears throat> ah, Bombardier is going to be a lot more fun. I just I hate the insult that we already knew they were doing it. They keep pretending they're not going to. That's what kills me. And here's a little stat for you, Ryan. Uh, Bombardier, what they're what are they good at? Well, not arriving on time. London tells us they can't do the signal lights. Uh, Toronto tells us they can't do the uh, rail or the cars. Uh, no, what they're good at is getting government money. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> it's, it's a great point, and uh, I mean, as a business, as a business, we just look at it as a, as business, and it's an absolute tire fire. It's been a terrible business over time, and that's what destroys shareholder value. And I just wouldn't put a dime into something. Yeah, like and that. that's why the government hired Morgan Stanley instead of you. <laughs> course and they should have because your track record's better at keystone financial i'm talking with ryan irvine you can find him though at keystocks.com and he's just put out the 20 uh or the cash cash rich small cap special report cash rich small cap special report uh i'll tell you i i love this stuff the track record's been great and speaking of that i'm going to get a follow-up from ryan in just a couple of seconds here on a stock that he recommended last time he was on the air and i'm also going to pry a couple of new ones out of him right here on the money talks network ryan irvine is here He's with Keystone Financial, but where you find him is www.keystocks.com, keystocks.com. Hey, Ryan, first of all, I, I do appreciate you being here. I wanted to get an update, though. Last time you were on the show, and it wasn't long ago, it was in November, uh, you talked about a company named Ebix. E-B-I-X is the symbol. It's on NASDAQ. And, uh, you know, obviously I keep track of these things. Uh, it's done darn well. Yeah, it's it's from our U.S. research. Uh, it's a company we continue to be uh, quite positive on. They just released their uh, Q4 results uh, this past week, and the stock has had a nice bump up from there. They are a software and e-commerce solutions provider to the insurance insurance industry. Essentially, they power the back-end operations for some of the lar- world's largest insurance companies. Um, it's trading around 41.18 today. Uh, it, back in November, this was trading around the $30, $31 range. So it's had a 35% move, which we like to see. Um, it, it pays a dividend. It's just uh, about a point, uh, just under 1% yield, but it's can up that dividend over time. Um, we, we like the valuations on the company. We love the quarter that just came out. Uh, revenues were up around 18% to $70 million. Earnings uh, came in at $0.65 cents per share for the quarter, up from $0.45 cents per share. So that's a, uh, a large jump up, about a 44% jump up in earnings, which is what we like to see. The valuations that we look like on this company, despite a 30% rise, it trades at about 15 times next year's earnings. The market itself is trading at about 18 times, so it's a discount to the market. Uh, we project 20 to 25% growth next year, so it's trading under its growth rate. It's what we call growth at a reasonable price, and we continue to have a buy on the company long term. Um, 
yeah, that's an example, though, as you say, you want to have a company, you're doing your projects, projections rather about, you know, where does it fit in terms of a growth profile? Did they meet those expectations? And uh, so, uh, look, I know you've just put out the new report, the Cash Rich, uh, cash rich Small Cap Special Report. People can go to uh, keystocks.com and get a, a copy. But uh, so I don't want to, you know, you've just done all this work, but maybe I can squeeze one or two of the kinds of things you suggested out of that. Excellent. Yeah, we got some companies in long-term coverage that are in that report, and we can talk about them today. The first one uh, is a relatively new recommendation. It's Syllogist. Uh, the symbol is SYZ on the TSX. It trades around 865. It's moved up from the start of the year when it was uh, just under $7. Uh, this is the type of company that would fit the profile of a cash-rich company. About 20% of the market cap is in cash and no debt. Um, uh, what they do, first of all, is they're a software provider for the financial industry for billing, uh, or uh, sorry, finance and back-end operations for pu- uh, public companies. Uh, anything from human resources to business analytics, providing software at a high margin to these companies. We like the balance sheet. Thirty-two million in cash, no debt. They have good organic growth, and that is one thing we are not seeing in many of the companies that we look at. Is good old-fashioned organic growth from existing products. A lot of yeah, let me just hold you at that. What you're talking about is like the, the business of the company. They're not growing only by acquisition, as an example. Instead, their business is good, so they keep growing it. Yeah, which, which is key. I mean, we'd love to see a combination of acquisition and organic growth, but the organic growth of the business is key. And, and so many companies that we look at, when we look through those 3,000 companies, we do not see organic growth or you see negative organic growth and that's not going to lead to share price gains over time so okay so let me ask you a couple things here syz is a symbol on the tsx you just sense it's trading what uh, you said about 860 was that what you said yeah they're out range yeah okay now how do you project going forward you know uh you know you, you obviously have some targets uh what would your target kind of be what time frame and how do you arrive at that well, we're looking at you know a fair market value right now. If we look at w- what the company has done and what we project it's going to do over the next year, uh, it's somewhere in the ten to eleven dollar range is where we think that stock is valued a year out. Now that is because the company has that strong cash position. We expect to use that cash to grow by acquisition, but they won't have to go to the market to dilute shareholders. They're just going to use cash on hand and generate mm-hmm. cash. Um, if we look there. Their profitability or their cash flow was up 35% in the last quarter, and this company trades at a cash flow multiple of about 16. So it's trading at half of the growth rate. So we think the multiple can also expand on the company. Uh, we like the fact that management themselves owns a significant stake in this company, and they continue to buy. It's about 4.5 million worth of shares that have been bought over the last year by uh, the company and the management team. So uh, good they are aligned with us as shareholders, which is a key element to the equation as well. Let me, let me hold it. you at that because yeah. I, I don't want to run out of time no here. Problem. So let's go to let, let's let's squeeze one more in. We've only got about three minutes. The last company we're going to talk about is another excellent example of a cash rich company. We've been talking about this company for about five years. It's Exco Technologies Limited. Its symbol is XTC on the TSX. Uh, we originally recommended this company in June of 2011 at 390. We talked about it at the Outlook the next year when the shares were in the $4 range. It trades just under $16 today. 
um, and we still, over that entire period, have had a buy on it. Uh, it still offers reasonable valuations right now. They are a global supplier uh, and servicer of uh, die cast and extrusion products for the automobile industry. So they make molds, lightweight molds uh, for powertrains on vehicles. They also made a smart acquisition uh, of a business that uh, does the leather work for um, much of the Mini Cooper lines and many of the BMW models. So, and it's been highly profitable for them. They made that acquisition all out of cash flow and paid it back two years later. And they just what is added to the growth is uh, about a month ago they announced another acquisition, again paying that out of cash and taking on just a small amount of debt. Uh, that has reignited the growth story here. The stock itself trades at about twelve and a half times earnings. Uh, we expect revenues over the next eighteen months to go from five hundred million to around seven hundred million. So that's forty percent growth. You're getting growth at a reasonable price on a company that we've invested in for five years. Uh, management owns a significant share or stake in the company. You know, everything, it's checking off a lot of the boxes that we like to see. For the past five years, it's up its dividend as well, which is what we love. But I have a great example. You've had the stock move. You recommended, say, the $4 range, $16 range now. But the growth has justified that and justified your further faith that it'll go further. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm just saying that's, uh, it, it, that's why a lot of people say, my God, you made that kind of money. Why didn't you sell it? Well, that's why. It was because the price of, uh, appreciation was justified by their performance as a company. As you say, another new ac- acquisition paid for by cash. That's yeah. why it, it qualifies in your yeah, and, and we said if it trades at 12 times earnings, if it traded at 50 times earnings and it was growing at 30%, mm-hmm. then we'd be selling it. But it still trades at a reasonable multiple. If we found this stock today and didn't, and it hadn't invested in it five years ago, we'd still buy it, and that's the key. Yeah. Ryan Irvine, thank you for taking the time. Let me just tell people, though, go to keystocks.com, keystocks.com. Uh, the new, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be all over this one. Uh, this is what I love. Ryan looks at 3,000 companies, so I don't have to. That's how I look at it. Uh, cash, cash Rich Small Cap Special Report, it's there. Go to the website, keystocks.com. Ryan, thanks for taking the time. Excellent. Thank you. There's a video of how we arrived at that report right on the site, and we finally joined social media, so you can go on there and ask on that. Thank you very much. Okay. Good stuff. Hey, Ryan, you're going to like my shocking stats. So will everybody else. I bet it will shock you. We'll do that when we come back right after the break on the Money Talks Network. Glad you're with us. Coming up, we'll go live to the trading desk with Victor Adair, and I've got a goofy award for you. Time, though, though, for my shocking stat of the week. First, a little background. For-profit universities in the U.S. have been coming under investigation, and some have actually subsequently been shut down for breaking state and federal laws. Investigators discovered that some have been using deceptive recruiting techniques by inflating their job placement success numbers. Uh, They target underprivileged youth and veterans. Uh, Potential students are encouraged to take out massive amounts of federal student loan debt with the promise of a great post-graduation job, which many never get. By the way, the problem starts for the U.S. taxpayer because they're, they're ultimately on the hook for the default on any federal guaranteed loan. And the numbers are very clear that the default rate is astronomically higher at that kind of a uh, university than traditional four-year college. Okay, let's get, oh yeah, by the way, Hillary Clinton has been talking this up on the campaign trail. But that brings me to my shocking stat. As you know, her emails are getting released on a regular basis, uh, basis rather, by the State Department. And one of them revealed, and she hasn't mentioned this, 
that she demanded the State Department, when she was Secretary of State, was hosting a dinner on higher education. She demanded that a senior vice president of something called Laureate Education, which manages four for-profit universities that got hefty tuitions, like in the $60,000 range, she demanded that a VP be included on the guest list for that education policy dinner hosted at the State Department. Okay, so here's the thing. A few months later, former President Bill Clinton became the honorary chancellor, oh, of Laureate International Universities. Okay, so this is the shocking stat part. So he was appointed honorary chancellor. In other words, you don't do anything. And it was between the years 2010 and 2014. How much do you think he was paid? I want you to think about a number. How much do you think he was paid to be honorary chancellor? He was paid $16.5 million to do nothing. Come on. Even if you're a big Clinton supporter, you've you got to have lost your ethical compass if you're not shocked by that number. But isn't that just typical? Here she is, peddling her influence, getting the guys invited to the special State Department dinner. There's obviously a relationship there, but come on. It's one thing for Bill to become honorary chancellor. But are you kidding, getting paid $16.5 million? for 2010 to 2004. Unbelievable. That's my shocking stat, and I was shocked by that stat. Coming up, Aussie Jurek, let's talk about some of that foreign buying. That's all the rage when you talk about Canadian real estate in Vancouver, especially, and in Toronto. Also, we're coming live from the trading desk, and we'll have a goofy. You're listening to the Money Talks Network. Earlier today, Michael Levy was talking about uh, the story that they've done good work at the uh, Globe and Mail about controversy around foreign ownership, especially in the Vancouver market. Uh, Property prices have gone way up. I've said repeatedly, I think it's too simplistic, just that aspect, because I can tell you right now, at the more entry level of the market, it's not foreign ownership, it's low interest rates and massive in-migration. 400,000 people more live in Vancouver right now, greater Vancouver now than it was 10 years ago. Well, you got to provide housing for some of them. That's created a huge demand. Where the foreign ownership issue is, is at the upper end of the market. Plus, it's got another part of it, uh, which is, is that money, is some of that money, at least dirty money. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff involved here, a little as typical, we're too simplistic with it. But Ozzy Jurek joins me on the line right now. I think one of the first things that jumps out, though, Ozzy, that we've been saying in this show for probably four years is that we don't have a lot of statistical validation for the degree of foreign ownership, where they're from, are they about to be resident, is it just absentee owners, the whole list. We don't have a lot of data. Well, and even if that data might be available, it's hard to get it because, first of all, we have a, an Asian population, uh, 400,000 people, and we can't do it by name. Uh, but there might be a lawyer that has uh, working, maybe a lot of clients that actually buy and sell real estate, but how would you get a track of those names? Where they can, however, track it is in the commercial sector. And mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Collier's just put out a report that... Uh, an astounding uh, number that China made up 42% of foreign real estate investment in Canada in the second half of 2015 alone. And that compares to 5% at the same time in 2014. So it's a huge increase. So when you're talking commercial, you're, are you talking apartment buildings and then office buildings, that kind of stuff? 
Taos, yeah, and, and large, yeah. larger deals, they're usually bought by corporations, and so they're much easier to get a hold of. And also, the, some of the numbers that uh, the transaction figures, real capital anal- analytics, uh, provide those. And so we, we are pretty sure that these numbers are correct, whereas on the residential side, uh, there just is no, no known factor that we can say this definitively is the number. But we can certainly talk to realtors, and anecdotally, we know that there's mm-hmm. a lot of private um, uh, residential uh, well we also know you know in australia where they were uh talking about a similar phenomena uh so they restricted foreign ownership and they they, they said they could buy something brand new but nothing existing well all that happened is that they got designated buyers in australia so they couldn't you know as you say it's very tough to track it's not quite as easy as people it's it's, it's easier to make the complaint than it is to rectify it is all i'm saying yeah uh, one of the, the other uh, yeah one of sorry, the bankers uh, that was actually being uh, sued uh, that uh, you know she said well how how can we in Canada monitor it when in China the law is you cannot take out more than 50,000 U.S. and yet here we we have a $3 million, $4 million buyer, so somehow that money gets out. The other thing, when you're talking about foreign ownership of commercial real estate, you just mentioned Chinese going uh, up to 42% of the buyers in the second half, but there's other foreign buyers. I mean, that reduction in the Canadian dollar has certainly attracted uh, some European money. Um, uh, unbelievably so. And I mean, I'm not surprised. I think you and I did a radio show two years ago when I was in Germany and talking to my yes. banker friend I went to school with. And he says, look, we have a lot of our private banking clients that might have three to 20 million euros. They've been slowly moving that money into different currencies. So they bought Waterfront in Nova Scotia. They bought condos in Montreal and Toronto driving a bit of their market. But on the commercial side, you know, we have about $823 million with just in that second half that China investors bought in 2015. But that really isn't the whole story because look at these enormous deals we just did. The Beijing-based insurance company mm-hmm. paid a billion dollars for a 66% stake in the four Bental Towers, uh, downtown Vancouver. And right next to it, the Royal Center sold for $432 million to a German investor. So we're talking big boys. Now, let me, let me throw in something very quickly here because we're running out of time. I'll tell you right now, commercial owners in Calgary wish that money was coming their way with all the problems they have. It's just an example. Uh, you know, we've just, as, as usual, the discussion on these things gets is really oversimplified and I think deceiving at times. Uh, the other thing, by the way, to throw in, Ozzy, is like can- Canadians are the biggest buyers of U.S. real estate if you just look on a per-door basis. Uh, second biggest in Australia. Uh, you know, big players in Europe. I mean, this is just the nature of things. Part of it driven by record low interest rates. So you've got, like the Canada Pension Plan, is buying infrastructure for example all over the world why because you can't just sit it in a 10-year bond yielding two percent so it's part of a much bigger phenomenon it's interesting we've got time for a couple of hot properties maybe one yeah we got a a, a, we have a large large parcel uh, very rarely coming up uh, 435 acres on four parcels two ranches it's uh, the Nazco River sort of meanders through the property it's the only deeded waterfront on Marmont Lake and actually has a private lake and it's on for just the price of a lot at $1.4 million. <laughs> There you go. Hey, Ozzy, by the way, just before I let you go, you've got your Land Rush conference coming up. I, I think it's, I'm not going to say how many years you've been doing it, but 24 comes to mind. <laughs> but you're, you're in April. You're at the Pinnacle in Vancouver, Pinnacle Harbor front there. Uh, give me the 30 seconds on that baby. 
Yeah, well, we're going to do my eight astounding predictions, but we have Tony Quatron, the vice chairman of CBRE Investment Property Group, one of the largest multi-family players. We have uh, Janet LePage, $150 million portfolio in Phoenix. We've got seven speakers. We have 100 properties under 100,000, over 30 display booths. We usually have about 600 people. Normally, tickets are one for 67. Until Tuesday, we have a special two for 97. Just come to our website. And website is J-U-R-O-C-K, Jurek.com, Jurek.com. It's the, uh, I think it's the 24th, Land Rush 2016 yes. with uh, 1,000 speakers. Okay, 11 speakers. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people talking about real estate. Ozzy, I'll get a chance to maybe uh, flesh that out with you next week, but thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Mike. Taking a break. Come back. Victor Dare and a Goofy Award. I got a goofy on deck for you, but right now I got to go live to the trading desk after quite a week with Victor Adair. Hey, Victor, once again, we've been playing this song for a long time, but man, is it ever about the central bankers, Janet Yellen, on stage this week? <laughs> yes, the uh, the anticipation of central bank activity, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it does drive swings in investor sentiment or market psychology and therefore drive swings in the market price. The market has been kind of, that's the sentiment in the market, been going back and forth in terms of will they, won't they raise interest rates. Right now, it seems as though the market is pricing in one more, maybe a little bit better than that, but one more 25 basis point increase in short-term rates this year. Uh, Come down from the, sorry, I was going to say, Vic, come down from the four they projected just in December. That's right. So they've, they've changed their tune or, let's say, scaled back. And they've got two broad things they watch. Employment, and they're sort of saying, well, you know, employment's okay. It's not fantastic, but it's okay. And then inflation. And they kind of downplayed any concerns about inflation, and this is where it gets interesting, by citing what they call global financial risk. I mean, man, that's a macro term, but I think some analysts lately have been wondering whether or not that is actually code you know for the fed thinks that maybe some of the currencies in the world particularly commodity currencies emerging market currencies have fallen too far too fast against the u.s dollar so they want to go easy for a while who knows i was just going to say sorry to interrupt but uh, and throw the canadian onto that pile i mean what it's been up nine weeks in a row the loony yeah canadian dollar up nine weeks in a row from the 13-year lows at 68 cents that we hit in the middle of january We've risen now, uh, as you say, nine consecutive weeks. We're up about 13%. This gets us back, by the way, to where we were in October of last year. And then, of course, on the uh, news front, we've got the Trudeau Liberals are going to have their first federal budget come up next week, and we'll see what that does to the Canadian dollar or to Canadians generally. I got to throw quickly at you the oil market. Uh, it broke above the sort of target. I thought I thought it would get back to 38 uh, no, it's gone further. Now we've got a new number in place. Probably, I don't know, it's 45 or something. Uh, you know, so it's gone further than I certainly anticipated. If it's just a correction, uh, give me your quick take. Quickly, I'd say, I mean, we've had oil rally for five consecutive weeks. The Canadian dollar and oil have been joined at the hip during that period of time. We've gone from about 26 bucks to about 40. That's an increase, by the way, of 54%. Uh, we're at a three-and-a-half-month high, just to just making new highs for the year. Uh, my quick take is uh, I'd be looking for a spot to short 
crude. I am out of that market right now. And then because Canadian dollar tied at the hip, I think the Canadian dollar rally is overdone as well. And and that links back, all of it back to that U.S. dollar. Yeah. I mean, it's been correcting because it had gone so high. Well, here's a good perspective, okay? In the last four years, the average, there's several different U.S. dollar indices, but the average of them is the dollar has risen more than 40%. In the last four months, it's fallen 5%. So I think if you look at that kind of a perspective, you can see that we've had the U.S. dollar in a big up move for several years. It's had a correction, maybe a little more to go. Who knows? But I'm of the view still that this is just a little correction in what's a longer-term bull market trend in the U.S. dollar. And I still think that's the key thing to get right. You get that right, you know, uh, and and I'm with you. I'm looking for a little more weakness. Uh, You know, let it play out a little bit here. As you always tell us, Victor, uh, currencies tend to run further than we can imagine, but then the party's over. Well, exactly. The currency will run further than you think makes any sense, then turn on a dime and go the other way, which I think supports the view that went too far in the first place. But that's the nature of currency trading. It is very, very much currencies are driven by swings in investor sentiment. In other words, you know, what do you believe about the world rather than some accountant with a green eye shade on, you know, doing his calculations and saying this is what it's worth. Yeah, great stuff as always, Victor. We've got we've got central bankers now instead of uh, movie stars. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> thanks, Mike. My, Cheers. my thanks to Victor. My thanks to Ozzy Jurek, uh, of course, uh, Steve Duchesne, uh, Ryan Irvine, and Michael Levy. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Uh, Solera Club of, is a royalty-based investment. Uh, uh, there's no fees, by the way. Uh, royalty means you get paid first. You're first in line for any payout. And it's in the tech sector. So for more information, go to solariclub.com. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Hey, maybe you remember this. We're back in the fall of 2010. McLean's Magazine ran a cover story calling Quebec the most corrupt province in Canada. You might remember it. The cover featured Bonhomme. Uh, you know, he is the sort of smiling, plump, Pillsbury Doughboy-like mascot of the Quebec City's uh, Carnival. And he was carrying a suitcase full of cash. Uh, you know, and, and why not? I mean, you had the Olympic Stadium scandals. You got Sponsorgate under the Jean Chrétien liberal era. And we always had nonstop stories of organized crime involved in government construction contracts, which, by the way, finally led to the Charbonneau Commission. And last count for me, there was about 109 arrests out of that one, my favorite being the mayor of Laval. They go to knock on his door, and they got 400000 in cash in the garage. And he said, I don't know where it came from. But you remember also, though, with that story, there was a huge outcry in Quebec. I mean, one of the most vocal critics of the McLean story was former Liberal Deputy Premier. Her name was Natalie Normando. Well, here's the goofy. Guess what? She was arrested on Thursday, along with six other notable Liberals. This is what she's, she's charged with conspiracy, bribery of a public servant, fraud against the government, and abuse of trust. You know, in that official report into corruption, her name appeared 175 times. But I love it. She was the one who was feigned such outrage at McLean's doing that. Talk about vindication for McLean's magazine. But actually, you know what? So you can think she's my goofy. Of course she is. But there's also another goofy here. is how few Canadians care. What you may forget is that in the light of that Sponsorgate scandal, which was outrageous. I mean, talk. that's where the suitcases full of money came. You know what? The Liberals didn't lose a vote outside of Quebec didn't cost them anything. 
and it never does. If it's the party you support, the quick response is, oh yeah, well others behave just as badly. That's the immediate response. Okay, yeah, and if it's a party you don't support, you think it's a horrendous deed. But it's really interesting. It's certainly not based on principle. So, hey, so she got arrested. It's not going to cost him anything, you know, in the end, in terms of political support. But I still thought an incredible goofy because she was so front and center with the outrage over McLean's calling Quebec the most corrupt province in Canada. That's all the time we have today. Hey, I want to remind you, you can get my daily business comment by just going to moneytalks.net. And I'll tell you, it's kind of funny this week uh, or last week, because boy, did I ever get some angry emails about suggesting that the U.S., which I think is totally verifiable, had treated Iran better on the oil file than Canada. And as I say, all the stats support that, but people didn't like to hear it. In the meantime, go out, have a terrific weekend, and I do appreciate you listening.